going to spend two weeks considering the cross as we approach Easter. Uh, it's a central theme of this festival time. And this morning we're going to be um, looking at that from Philippians chapter 2 and the first 11 verses. So if you put the first slide up, please. Yeah. No, that's the last slide. <laughs> that's the one. Thank you. Good. Okay, so um, taking some words from this passage, uh, we've entitled it this morning, Even Death on a Cross. We all know that the cross is a unique symbol of Christianity. We fix replicas of it to our church walls. Uh, we make very ornate versions of it to adorn our church furniture. Um, we uh, emboss it in gold on our Bibles. We parade it round our streets, we hang it round our necks, we dangle it from our ears, and these days we may even have it tattooed on our bodies. Anybody? No, okay, all right. Um, it's so identified with Christianity that when, in recent years when the Chinese government wanted to crack down on Christians, they've removed crosses from church buildings, not only the unregistered churches, but from the official church buildings, they've taken the crosses away, thinking that this is such an emblem of Christianity, and that this is an attack uh, on Christians. So how did the symbol of the worst form of torture and human degradation ever invented uh, become the symbol of Christianity? Um, John Stott writes this, John Stott was a uh, uh, a famous London preacher and Bible commentator, and he said this, Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the world and taken over by both Greeks and Romans. It's probably the most cruel method of execution ever practised, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victims could suffer for days before dying. It was such a, de a degrading form of death that Roman citizens were exempt uh, from this method of execution except in extreme cases of treason. And in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. And for the Jews, it was the ultimate curse. The Apostle Paul, quoting Deuteronomy, says this, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And yet, Probably the most painted religious subject is that of the crucifixion. Jesus hanging on the cross with people standing by, maybe friends, maybe accusers, or Jesus being taken down from the cross uh, after uh, he had died. And uh, so how was it that the sinless Son of God should find himself in such a low state of degradation? And the answer is one word, and it's obedience. Now then, if someone is caught in a dilemma or tragedy of some sort, like a car accident, um, we would say, oh, they're unlucky. They must have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But here at the cross, um, this is not the case, because in obedience to the Father, Jesus chose this path. Because it was the Father's plan from the beginning, right from the beginning before the world was made, that he would deal with sin and rebellion uh, in people like us by turning his righteous anger away from us and turning it upon himself uh, in the person of his son. 
so, the sun, so that the son should take the punishment we deserve with the pain and agony and the disgrace of this horrible way to die is a measure, firstly, of how offensive our sin is to God, that it would take the death of his son to deal with it. But secondly, it's, it demonstrates how he loved us, that he was willing to send his son and that Jesus was willing to take our place so that our sins would be forgiven. And through faith in him and his sacrifice on the cross, we could be reconciled to God. That's a word often used in the Bible, but it means that once we were enemies, but now we are friends with God. This is why the cross, this symbol of horrific torture and death, has become for us a symbol of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. All those things. We've come to the place, we love the cross. We love the cross because of what it means to us. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses then. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So Paul's clear intention here is, uh, is to use this passage uh, to encourage the Christians at Philippi to take example from Jesus humbling of himself and imitate that in their relationships with one another. Uh, but this morning we're going to concentrate on the second half of this, uh, this scripture um, which is Jesus' mission. What, what God did in sending Jesus to this world and the significance of the cross as described in verse, verses 6 to 11. So we can have the next slide, please. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Okay. Um, Bible commentators consider that verses 6 to 11 that we're looking at here might have been a hymn or part of a hymn used uh, by the early church. Whether or not it is, Paul has clearly in a few words captured so wonderful this mighty stoop of God. God reaches down. He stoops down from highest heaven to lowest earth. So verse 6 then, Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Not an easy sentence to understand, but let's give it a go. Being in the form of God does not mean that it was like a painting or a statue. I might have a, as it were, a, a, a bust of Winston Churchill on a stand here, and I say this is in the form of Winston Churchill. But that's not what is said here. What this means is that he is of the same substance as God, that he is equal with God. And the Apostle John, at the opening words of his Gospel, which are very familiar, says this, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word. And we know this term refers to Jesus because later it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Living Bible version has, has it this way. Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He's always been alive and is himself God. And then at the beginning of the um, letter to the Hebrews, um, which launches right in telling us about Jesus. And the writer says, In times past, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets in various ways and at various times, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And this is what he says about him. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right at the beginning of this passage, um, the apostle is dealing with the pre-existence of the Son of God, who is eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he says, though, or even though, he is equal with God. Even though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we've established he has equality with God, he is God. So this is not saying that equality with God is something he did not have and had to snatch at or grasp at, uh, but rather um, that he did not use it to his advantage in fulfilling his mission. And what follows confirms how he did not cling to his rights as God because he became a servant. Maybe this illustration will help. The owner of a large manufacturing company tells his son, who's just reached the age of 16 that he's decided to make him an equal owner of the company with him uh, with all the privileges and the authority that that entails but so that the son is best able to manage the company in the years to come he is to enter that company as an apprentice by the normal recruitment process to serve his time as an apprentice alongside uh, other recruits now, although he owns the factory now and will one day be seen to be in charge, he is not to use it to his advantage, but to put aside any rights he has as owner. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not use equality with God while he was here on earth to his advantage. And then verse 7, But made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Other versions have it slightly differently. You may remember the King James Version that was the only Bible we had for many years. It said, he made himself of no reputation. 
NIV that we've used a lot in days past said he emptied himself. Now this does not mean that he lost anything. In emptying himself, he didn't lose anything, but he poured himself out. He gave of himself in completely as a slave and unto death. And now all these are ways of saying Jesus humbled himself. He put aside his rights as God. We must know that it was not forced upon him because every step of the humiliating way to the cross was his choice in obedience to the Father. As we mentioned when we were looking at the book of Romans some months ago, that in coming to earth, Jesus did not leave anything behind in heaven. He was still God, but a God who humbled himself. He did not cease to be what he had always been, but he became what he had not been by, by taking our humanity. Jesus didn't um, leave one form for another, didn't abandon one form for another. There was not an exchange here. It's not that he was God in heaven, then when he comes to earth he's a man, and then he goes back to heaven uh, just as God. No. Um, he um, is the, the one who is in the form of God. He did not... Ab abandoned the form of God when he came to earth. If he had, God could not have been our saviour. Paul tells us in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So being born in the likeness of man and taking the form of a servant were what we saw when Jesus was on earth. That's what we see in the Gospels. Uh, a man who uh, is, is, is in our humanity. But the form of God was still there, but it was hidden. It was veiled, but it was still there. He became a servant, or a bond servant, or a slave. Um, he came to do the Father's will, which was to serve the pur Father's purpose in saving mankind. Everything he did on earth, he did for others. You remember when the disciples were, were jockeying for position, seeking places of honour from Jesus when he came into his, his heavenly kingdom. Um, Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them. And then he added, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 28. And... During what we know as the Last Supper, Jesus, before he was taken to be crucified, as a mark of his love for his disciples, you remember he took a towel and a basin with water and he washed the disciples' feet. This is a task that would have fallen to the lowliest of slaves in the household, but Jesus did it. Peter objected, said, you're not going to wash me. But Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. You have to let me do what only I can do for you. And the same is true for us. We have to let Jesus serve us in salvation. We cannot do it ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We have to let Jesus serve us. We have to let the death of Jesus be effective in our lives. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to invite Jesus' salvation into our lives. 
So Jesus the Son becomes a human being and then takes a further step down and took the role of a servant. And the next verse, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death. And as if to emphasise how horrific this is, you know what we've just considered about some crucifixion, how horrific it is, it says, even death on a cross. Now although Jesus remained sinless, Paul reminds us in Romans that he came in sinful flesh, in human nature, in all its pain and weakness and frailty and liable to suffering. You know, and when the disciples witnessed Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the prospect of the cross, they knew that he was every inch a man. Although more than a man, but he was every inch a man. And it was there in the Garden that Jesus' obedience was tested to the ultimate. And he prayed, didn't he, asking the Father. He used the words, if this cup can pass from me then please may that happen but not my will but yours if there's any other way we can do this father then please let it happen but not my will but yours so Jesus was facing this horrific prospect of crucifixion and um, there are two aspects to that of course there's the physical suffering and, and then there's the emotional uh, and mental suffering uh, of that the physical suffering inflicted by crucifixion was horrific but not unique. Jesus wasn't the only person crucified. Flogging and crucifixion were common in the Roman Empire. And in 71 BC, long before Jesus was born, a slave re revolt led by Spartacus. Anybody see the film Spartacus years ago? Yeah? And um, Kirk Douglas plays the part. Um, this revolt was put down by the Romans and 6,000 survivors of the battle were crucified and hanging on crosses along the Appian Way on the way to Rome. Can you just imagine this? 6,000 people being slaves, being crucified. So it's possible that in later years Jesus will have, a, have, have witnessed the crucifixion. So the physical side of it would have been a terrible spectre for him. However, his mental and emotional suffering was to be totally unique. That's not to say that everybody else who's crucified doesn't uh, face some mental anguish uh, or emotional suffering. But because of Jesus' relationship with the Father, because God's righteous judgment against sin was to fall on him, this was terrible emotional suffering. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, he, that's God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's that wonderful exchange that God has done on our behalf. And so the real agony for Jesus is that he would suffer, not ultimately um, at the hands of the Romans or egged on by the Jews, but at the Father's hand. It was the Father who brought this about. Um, there's a prophecy in, the, uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 53. This is a wonderful passage of scripture because it foretells 
God's suffering servant. And there's so much detail in there that if you put it alongside the Gospels, you find how amazingly Jesus fulfilled all these things. And this is what Isaiah says. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's everyone. That's like the New Testament phrase. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone, we've all turned our way, gone our own way away from God and the Lord has laid on him that's his suffering servant laid on him the iniquity of us all it is the Lord who laid it on him such was the mental anguish at the prospect of all this that Luke records that Jesus sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground and in addition to that he would become a curse. I mentioned that at the beginning and the rest of this scripture is Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that is the punishment that is due to those who break the law the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree one could say that Jesus consented to experience hell so that we wouldn't have to. In our passage, Paul saw Christ's death on the cross as the ultimate act of obedience and the lowest point of humiliation. In his coming, he made himself a slave. In his dying, he made himself a curse. And Jesus knew that the only way that sinful human beings could be forgiven and be made right with God was to go to the cross. Jesus knew that the only way that he could have redeemed human beings with him in eternity as his eternal companion, spoken of later in the New Testament as the bride of Christ, the only way he could do that and have those people as, as his bride, as it were, was to go to the cross. And this was the joy that was set before him. As Jesus faced the cross and that prospect of it in the garden, then he could see beyond it how worth it would be for all those that would be redeemed and become uh, his to share eternity with him. And this is what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Jesus said, it's worth it, whatever the pain, whatever the suffering, whatever the humiliation, it is worth it for the people that would be redeemed as a result. There's no lower point than the cross where the suffering servant tasted death for everyone. Here is where the one who is equal with God has most fully revealed the truth about God. We could say lots of things about God which are true. But here's a special truth about God, that God is love and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice. Even cruel, humiliating death on a cross. Why? It's for the sake of those he loves. Perhaps we should remind ourselves that this is a divine scandal. God hanging on a cross is a divine scandal because the cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. No one in the church at Philippi right, would have had a cross round their neck 
or gold pendants or lighted crosses on their steeples. The cross was God's and therefore their scandal. It was a scandal for early Christians to say we're putting our trust in someone who was crucified. It was an absolute scandal. God's contradiction of human wisdom and power. But it is the heart of the gospel. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, um, he said, you know, I didn't come to you with wise, persuasive words. I was determined to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. So then, after this long descent, this descent to earth and the suffering, it was done, it was finished, it was accomplished. So now there is salvation for all who believe. Now there is new life for all who put their trust in him. But our hymn takes a sharp upward turn. After Good Friday, Easter Sunday is inevitable because death could not hold him. It could not keep its hold on him because he conquered death and the grave and was raised to life by the mighty power of God. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first part of that then, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Here is the response of the Father to Jesus' prayer. Even on that same night that we talked about with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, we read in John 13 that there was this, um, sorry, John 17, there was this wonderful prayer of Jesus, often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he's praying for the disciples, but before, right at the beginning of that, he says this, I, talking to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So this is what the Father have answered by giving him a name above every name. And just notice that the glory that Jesus was looking for was not a new glory, it was the glory that he had previously with the Father in heaven. The Son had glorified the Father in his obedience unto death. The Father will glorify his Son in restoring him to his eternal glory and giving him a name which is above every name. Let me ask you a question. What is that name? Okay, that, that's what most of us would say. Um, but there's another view. Right? Another view is that it, it is Lord, and I'll explain that. Many scholars believe that it's not the name of Jesus that is above every name, but the name Lord that belongs to Jesus. The problem for us is that the title Lord is fairly commonplace, isn't it? It's used in our nation's peerage and even in the Church of England, talking about Lord bishops and so on. But to understand what is meant here, we need to see how we come to have this word Lord throughout our Bible. The Hebrew name for God, you probably know, is Yahweh, or another version of it is Jehovah. But because the Jews 
were afraid of mispronouncing it or writing it incorrectly when copying scripture scrolls and as a result by mistake taking the Lord's name in vain which would have broken a commandment they eventually stopped pronouncing it and substituted another word and throughout the Greek version of the Old Testament and into the New the word used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh is Kyrios which we translate into English as Lord and it occurs over 6,000 times in that sense so then it is right that the one who has been described in our passage as being in the form of God or being in very nature God and having equality with God should be given this divine name he is Yahweh Jesus he is Lord Jesus God has given him not a name it isn't a name it is the name the name that is his own name and the one name which is above every name and of course this is the name which Thomas acknowledged um, uh, remember Thomas doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead but when he saw him he fell at his feet and he cried out my Lord and my God and of course right at the beginning of Jesus life the message of the angel to the shepherds was for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord or Christ Yahweh and this is supported by what follows in this we called it a hymn so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father part of this is a quotation again from the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 45 and this passage shows us that the one name has been given to Jesus Christ which could not be given to another person in the universe of men or angels God alone can bear it and here's what Isaiah says and it's the words of God turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn by from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance so it could not be more dramatically revealing that the honors so jealously guarded by God throughout the Old Testament are given to Jesus in the New Testament because they are both one and the same God now I don't believe that what has been what is being acclaimed for Jesus here this honor this name this glory is something new as if he were being rewarded for a job well done Jesus will receive his um, reward uh, most definitely and as I've mentioned already part of that reward believe it or not is us those that are redeemed we are his reward we are his inheritance absolutely amazing right? and the point is this that Jesus did not become the Lord of glory after he was crucified right? he didn't become the Lord of glory after he was crucified for it was precisely the Lord of glory who was crucified Jesus did not be begin to be Lord at his ascension 
but he did begin to be Lord in a new way. And this is very important for the, for the first time he's now having returned to heaven. He was in heaven in our nature at the right hand of God as the God-man. So we have a representative. We have a mediator. We have one who understands our weaknesses. We have one uh, who has been tested in, and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, who has all power and authority. We are not alone in the universe. We have as its maker and sustainer our saviour and friend. The hymn ends with an encouragement to worship and, and an announcement that at the end of this present age, willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow in submission to Jesus. That day is variously called the day of judgment, the great and awesome day of the Lord, and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about it a few weeks ago, but it's the time when God is going to wind up everything. He is going to judge this world by Jesus. And we can only have confidence for that day if we have put our trust in Jesus now. Um, it's an awesome prospect without the salvation that Jesus brings. But we can obtain that now. We can be saved now. We can put our trust in Jesus now so that we do not need to fear judgment. It's going to be an awesome time. God is going to be a righteous judge. The wrongs are going to be righted. All right? But we don't have to fear judgment because we can put our trust in Jesus now and we are saved now. We are saved now and for eternity. And we will be able to stand on that day knowing that Jesus is our saviour, Jesus is our righteousness. We are justified in God's sight. I'm going to close there, but just before we do, I put the last slide up. I don't know whether this will help you or it won't help you, all right? But it helped me in, in, um, in producing it, all right? So it's just a way of uh, picturing this stoop of God, this way that God uh, has entered into a, a mission of salvation for us through his Son. So I'll just, just read it. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll sing a hymn and then we'll pray. Okay. You chose the cross. <laughs>